If you have your Bible, I would like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through Peter's letter to these exiles in Asia Minor, and our time together this morning will be greatly helped if you join us by following along in a copy of God's Word. You should be able to find one underneath the seat in front of you or near you if you did not bring a copy of God's Word with you. Um, you should be able to find First Peter somewhere around page 1014, and if you're not very familiar with the Bible, it's the large numbers that are chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are pardoned through the blood of Jesus, and we ask that you would give us a new sense of that this morning. We pray that you would continue to pardon us by it, that we may come every day to the fountain and every day be washed anew, that we may worship you always in spirit and in truth, especially right now as we turn our attention to your word. We pray in these moments, as we continue in worship by studying your word, that you would open our eyes to the truth of God revealed in scripture, that you would give us ears to hear the teaching of the scripture and rightly apply it to our lives. I pray that you would help me, Father, that you would guard my mouth, that in these moments that I would speak and preach faithfully your word, your truth, not only for my hearers, but for myself. We all need your word this morning. The believers need to be built up, and those who have joined us who are not yet Christians need to be called to faith and repentance. Those who are discouraged need to be reminded of the hope that is theirs in Christ, and those that by your grace are doing well need to be reminded of the burdens that they bear for their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Father, we ask that you would help us now in this time to hear, to see, to understand that we have what we have not, you would give to us. What we are not, that you would make us for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thomas Chalmers was a great preacher and a professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. After seven years of an ineffective rule ministry, he had a deep encounter with Christ that actually changed the rest of his life. It changed his heart and it set his preaching ablaze. One of his most famous sermons begins with the words that profoundly express why. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace 
from the human heart its love of the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that it is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new affection. My purpose is to show that from the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and that latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. Peter's aim is the same as Chalmers, to displace from our heart its love for the world by setting before us another object. He wants to dislodge our affections and love affair with all things around us by presenting to us a big view of God and a wonderful picture of the redemption that is ours in Christ. Even God is a more worthy object of our attachment. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, what he does is he magnifies the infinite value of the triune God by helping us see that we are stewards of God's grace through gifts to one another at the end of all things. We are stewards of God's grace through gifts to one another at the end of all things. Notice first, the future controls the present. Look with me again in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. On three other occasions in this letter, Peter directs the attention of these Gentiles living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia to the end of all things when Christ will come a second time. If you have your Bible, flip to chapter 1, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now just look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now flip over to chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter, just like the rest of the New Testament writers, believed that Christ's incarnation, death, descent, resurrection, and ascension ushered in the end of all things. And as a result of them, the end is dawned. We see this all over the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. But Peter did not know if the last of the last days or the end of the end times would actually come in his lifetime. 
He never gave a specific date or a time or even a reference point at it all. And as readers, we're left to wonder, how is it that the end of all things would actually be the motivating factor to those living in northern Asia Minor who are experiencing alienation and misrepresentation and hostility and slander for their faith in Christ? How is it that the doctrine of the end times would be something that would help them end time as they live their Christian life when there is so much that is unknown about the end of all things? Until we consider that his concern is actually how the stress that afflicts the church from the outside results in stress that afflicts the church on the inside. It's always been this way. That the pressures from without affect the way that we live with one another. What happens to us individually impacts the way that we relate to the people around us. Just as pressure causes cracks to appear in pipes and in ice and in cement, so it will cause fissures in churches and expose all of the pressure points. People who are suffering as a result of their faith in Christ will be exposed in their weakness. And they will be seen for who they truly are. And their deficiencies will be laid bare before everyone. So Peter once again reminds them and us that the end of all things is at hand as they suffer through strife and persecution, as people malign them, and ridicule them as people take away their jobs and alienate them as they suffer through this life as a way of reminding them and us that the future for the believer controls the present for the believer. Tim Keller once gave an illustration that demonstrates the future controls the present. Imagine that there are two women who are identical in age, socioeconomic status, education level, and temperament. They are both hired to be part of a tedious assembly line job, doing the work that is both repetitive and boring. They do this work over and over again, day in and day out, eight hours a day without fail. They are placed in identical rooms with the same lighting, the same temperature, and the same ventilation. They have the same number of breaks. The circumstances are identical in absolutely every way with one singular difference. One woman has been told at the end of the year that she will receive $30,000 for her labor. And the other woman is told that she will receive $30 million for her labor. After a few weeks, one woman is going crazy and wants to quit. And the other is working with joy day in and day out. What makes the difference for the two people? Their expectation of the future. Brothers and sisters, what we believe about the future controls how we live in the present with others in the present. And Peter, by telling us that the end of all things is at hand, actually reminds us and helps us see that end-time expectation is not simply wishful thinking. It's not simply for speculation about what will happen and when and will we be raised or will we be raptured. What the end-time expectation is for in the New Testament is about a better future that invades the present with hope and joy so that the believer looks forward to the future and does not fear it. Are you here and are you hopeless today? Are you one of the people in the room whose glass is not merely half empty, but it is completely empty in every way? Are the circumstances of your life, those in your relationships, those at work, those here at church, 
the people that you call friends, so adversely affecting the way that you live and the way that you interact with others and the way that you speak that it's actually negatively impacting the lives of everyone around you. Peter tells you, if you are here and you're hopeless today, remember, the end of all things is at hand. And the outcome of your faith, he assures us in this same letter, is the salvation of your souls because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And which is why he's constantly reminding us, what has Jesus Christ done for you? Jesus Christ took on flesh and he lived the life that you could never live. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was righteous. He was holy. He was undefiled. He died the death that you deserve to die because of your rebellion against God, because of your love affair with the pleasures of this world. Money, sex, power, prestige, leisure, alcohol, education, freedom, attention. So that if you would repent of your sins and turn away from them and throw them off and cling nothing to else and trust in his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for you, that you might have pardon for sin and peace that endureth, his own dear presence to cheer and to God, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, the end of all things actually lifts the head of the believer and points them forward in the right direction rather than confusing them in the New Testament. And it calls the non-Christians among us to repentance. It reminds us that the end of the world is coming, that a day is coming sooner than you think when Jesus Christ will be visible and his reign will be manifest for all to see and you all will be held accountable for the way that you have lived your life this side of eternity. The question for us when we think about the end times is not what will happen and when, but will you be ready for it? Brothers and sisters, will you be ready for it? If you are not a Christian here today, there is only one way to be ready for the end of all things. It is by placing all of your trust in Jesus Christ that is the reprise of this sermon. That is the reprise of every song that we sing. That is the reprise of every Sunday service that we have here at Christ Church Westchester. And we make it so unashamedly because we need to remind ourselves week in and week out, Sunday in and Sunday out, year in and year out, that your only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the mighty friend of sinners. And friends, he invites all of you, all of us to trust in him so that you might have hope of heaven and everlasting life and pardon for sin. And all you have to do is something very simple. You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. There are many things that we sing about that you might not understand. And there are things that we confess here as a congregation that you might be confused by. But the gospel message is abundantly clear and very simple. Trust in Jesus, turn away from sin, repent of your sins, believe in Christ hope in his resurrection, and throw off everything else in the world. And no matter what happens to you in this life, you will be born again by the Spirit of God. Do you feel weak? Come to Jesus. Are you hopeless? Trust in Christ. Are you overwhelmed by all of the sorrows in your life? Friends, Jesus is the mighty friend of sinners. And he invites all of you, come, come. Come to me all who are weary. Come to me all who are heavy laden. Come all who are overwhelmed by anxiety. Come all who have been oppressed 
and mistreated, abused, and overrun by the world. And I will give you rest. Rest. Peace. This is the message that Peter preaches to these people. And he does it by reminding them of what we think to be the most confusing doctrine, and often is, the end of all things. The end of all things is for the hope of the believer. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, will you trust in Christ? The scripture is clear. You must trust in Christ. The alternative to infinite joy in Christ is not non-existence in the Bible. The alternative to infinite joy in Christ is eternal conscious torment in hell where you get what you deserve for the way that you have lived your life. Friend, if you trust in Christ, you will not get what you deserve. You will get what you do not deserve, mercy and forgiveness. And if you have questions about who Jesus is or what that means, we would love to speak with you. You are in the right place this morning, the best of all places. Come find me after the service. Speak to one of the brothers and sisters around you right now. And you just need to ask a very simple question if the rest of this sermon is confusing. Here's your point if you're not a Christian. You have one question that you need to remember. I want to follow Jesus. How do I do that? Find anybody in the room after the service, and they would love to open the Bible with you and tell you how to follow Jesus. And if you're here and you're pretending like you're following Jesus, you have one point as well. Ask somebody after the service. I've been pretending like I'm following Jesus, but I'm actually not following Jesus. Will you help me figure out what I need to do to follow Jesus? And they will open the Bible with you and tell you the truth. From a human vantage point, Peter's reminder that the end of all things is at hand is an event that could happen at any time, which is why when we're reading the New Testament, the doctrine of the end times is actually confusing for us. It's imminent for them. It's coming. Come, Lord Jesus. Come right now. The end is here. The kingdom of God has broken into the present time, and now we live between this time when it has come and he will come again. And everything between when Jesus came in the flesh and Jesus will come again is in the time between the times. That's where we live right now. And they're looking for it. They're longing for it, just like you're looking for it and you're longing for it. And Peter says, that end is coming sooner than you think. And we need to be prepared for that time because we are stewards of God's grace through gifts to one another at the end of all things. The future controls the present. Notice second, practical righteousness at the end of, all th- at the, end of the age. Look with me again in verse 7. Therefore, here's the inference based off of the end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God and God alone supplies. Well, that one. Terry, it's hot up here. When asked what he would do if the end of the world would come today, Martin Luther famously quipped that he'd plant a tree and pay his taxes. 
that he'd live his last day just like he lived every other single day of his life in light of the end of all things, which is exactly what Peter is calling these Christians and all of us to do after reminding them that the end of all things is at hand. But what is shocking for us, perhaps, is that there is this extraordinarily ordinary nature of his exhortation. We might expect that there would be this, thank you, Terry, this radical behavior, thinking something unusual would be demanded in light of the arrival of the end of all things. We would expect that Peter would say, the end of all things is at hand. What you need to do is you need to sell all of your possessions and go live in a monastic community in the mountain ranges of Nepal and await the consummation of the age. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Pursue virtues that are a normal part of the Christian life. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Keep loving. Show hospitality. Speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Serve as one who serves by the strength God supplies. All of which affect our relationship with one another. A phrase that is actually mentioned three times in our passage today. I wonder if you noticed, if you like to underline in your Bible, follow along. Verse 8. He's speaking now to the believing community. Above all, keep loving, not yourselves, not the people you like, one another earnestly. Verse 9, show hospitality, not to the people who are easy to deal with, but to one another without grumbling. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Peter is concerned about our life together at the end of all things. He doesn't tell them something that is dramatic and radical. He says, the end of all things is at hand, so you need to pay careful attention to the way that you share life together, the way that you live among one another. The way that, the way that you live together and among one another actually refracts and communicates the gospel to the unbelieving world around you and how that is a powerful gospel testimony. But he knows that they will only be others-focused in their Christian living when they are first, verse 7, self-controlled and sober-minded. The end of all things has actually caused some people to act irrationally and lose their minds. Now, that's not novel. That was true in the first century, and that's true in the 21st century. People look at the end of all things, and they act irrational, and they lose their minds, and they say foolish things. Peter says, restrain your desires and think clearly, because the end of all things is at hand. Don't live in sensuality. Or give yourself over to fantasy if you don't live in sensuality. Don't be overrun by your passions or indulge in the illicit and the explicit. Don't be so in love with food that you overeat like a glutton. And don't be so concerned about your bodily image and appearance that you undereat and starve yourself. Don't fly off the handle in fits of anger and rage or respond by stonewalling all of your friends and family and isolating yourself. You need to be self-controlled. You don't need to respond the way that you think that you need to respond. You need to restrain your desires. Because so much of the Christian life in the New Testament is learning by God's grace as you depend upon God's Spirit how to make yourself not do what you want to do but do not need to do and do what you do not want to do but should do. That is the Christian life in a nutshell in the New Testament. 
There are all of these things that you want to do. You want to respond this way. You want to act this way. You want to think this way. You want to speak this way. Don't do that. Do these things that are not natural to you. Love other people. Give to other people. Serve other people. Share the gospel with other people. Join a local body. Build up the body. Give your life. Pour out your life for the good of other people, not for yourself, because life is not about you. Self-controlled living in the life of a believer leads to a sobriety of thought. A sobriety of thought that is actually in direct contrast to this uncontrolled drunkenness and lifestyle of the unbeliever in verse 3. Just look up in the passage in chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, they know what Gentiles are. They are Gentiles. You are Gentiles. He's speaking here of unbelievers. You are the people who are Christians living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But there are these other people living in those areas. They're Gentiles. They're not believers. Time has passed for doing what they want to do. Now you, believers, need to do something else. Don't live in sensuality. Don't live in passion. Don't live in drunkenness. Don't live in orgies. Don't live in drinking parties. Don't live in lawless idolatry. Don't live in such a way that you're inebriated and you can't make controlled, intelligent decisions. Whether that's with the bottle or something that you bring into your body in another way. Don't live in such a way that you're so overrun by your passions that you can't think clearly and make your way through the world. The person who's living foolishly in the world is the person who's walking away from Jesus Christ. And the person who is making their way wisely through the world is the person who is walking after Jesus Christ. So Peter says, don't be overrun by passion. Be self-controlled. Be restrained. And when you are restrained, not doing what you want to do but should not do, then you will think clearly. For those of you who are battling indwelling sin in here, especially those of you who are battling sin that you have not brought other people into your life to wrestle with, the reason that you can't think straight or pray right or defeat that sin is because you're not thinking clearly and you won't be able to think clearly until you can restrain those passions. Whether you view it online or do it in person, whether it's something that happens in private or something that happens in public. And it rules you. And you'll never be able to think straight to be able to make your way out of it because you're overwhelmed by your desires. You've been given over to the thing that you love more than God. And friends, we're here to tell you today, repent. It's not hidden. God sees. And he's placed you in his mercy in a church today to help you. If you're a member here, he's placed you in this membership to help you. And if you're not a member here, join a church and ask people to help you. And if you're not a believer, he's placed you around believers so that they would help you by giving you the best news you've ever heard. Jesus Christ can set you free from sin. He will forgive you of sin and he will set you free of sin. Peter tells these believers that the first step in being able to live rightly at the end of all things is being self-controlled and then learning to think straight Clear thinking is needed, not only so that there's a contrast between the life of faith and the life of unbelief, but also for holiness, prayer, and resisting the devil. This is something that I saw this week for the first time. So I need everybody to turn with me to chapter 1, verse 13. 
There are three times in this book where Peter mentions being sober-minded. There's this sobriety of thought. And when we see it, it helps everything in 1 Peter. It's beautiful and it's awesome. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Why do we read the Bible, study the Bible, preach from the Bible, have Sunday night theology, have academy, study the scripture on Wednesday night? It's because you need to prepare your mind for action. You won't be able to think right if you don't know accurate things about God. No one receives an external word from God about something not revealed in his word. You want to know something about God? Read the Bible. You want to hear God speak to you? Read the Bible out loud. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, be holy in all of your conduct. Verse 15. The connection between being holy is being sober-minded. All right, now we look in chapter 4, verse 7. So there's a connection between being sober-minded and holiness in chapter 1. Chapter 4, verse 7. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's a connection between being sober-minded and being holy. There's a connection between being sober-minded and praying. Now look over to chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. There's a connection between being sober-minded and our ability to resist the devil. To be the holy people Peter has called us to be, we must be sober-minded. And as he's told us in chapter 4, we can't be sober-minded unless we are self-controlled. There is a connection between being sober-minded and actually praying the right way. But we won't be able to pray the right way unless we are first self-controlled. And there is a connection between being sober-minded and our ability to resist the devil and put sin to death in our life and throw it off, but we won't be able to resist the devil and throw it off unless we are first self-controlled people. So Peter sprinkles it throughout his letter so that we might see we are to be a sober-minded people, thinking rightly so that we might understand how to make our way in a world that is hostile. That's true for you now, and that was true for these believers whose lives were just like yours, living in a society that did not like them because of their faith in Christ and misunderstood them because of their faith in Christ and did not trust them because of their faith in Christ and ostracized them because of their faith in Christ. So Peter tells them, be restrained and be sober-minded. Clear thinking for Peter is necessary to live the life of faith in all of our conduct and in all of our prayers and our resistance of the devil, but we won't be sober-minded enough to live that way and pray that way and resist that much unless we are first self-controlled. Friends, are you overrun by your passions? Do your emotions rule you? If your emotions rule you, then they will control you and they will hinder your prayers. And they will keep you, verse 8, from loving one another. Above all. Now imagine why he did this. Self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Now he starts to tell us how to live together. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, the stress of the world is going to cause you to not love one another. It's going to cause you to look at yourself and to look inward and stop looking outward and at other people. So stop doing that 
And you need to look at other people and serve other people. When believers contemplate how to spend their last days in light of Jesus' return, Peter wants them to remember the priority of love because love is central to the Christian life. And love, according to Peter, must be, verse 8, earnest or it is not love. Friends, it is the reach of God's love that stretches our love. We love because he first loved us. Our love is actually kindled by God's love. It is stretched by exercise. And if it collapses at the first test of stress, then it was never love to begin with. If you write off people and write off a church and write off others in your lives because one day was difficult and one conversation was hard and one thing was hard for you, did you really love in the first place? If you throw off everybody because they offended you, Can you just imagine for just a moment what it would have been like if everybody would have thrown you off every time that you offended them? Which is why Peter says, verse 8, only earnest love covers a multitude of sins. He does not mean that earnest love does not see sin. He does not mean that earnest love does not hold sin accountable. He does not mean that earnest love actually causes the church to overlook sin in the life of a fellow member and not discipline it in the life of the church. He doesn't mean that the church should actually close its eyes to abuse and mistreatment of other people. What he means is that earnest love isn't fault-finding. Earnest love isn't easily offended. Earnest love is something that covers over a multitude of sins because one of the great dangers in the life of the church is that sinners who sin against one another would be easily offended by each other's sins and write everybody off and isolate themselves and be more susceptible to the schemes of the devil. Brothers and sisters, are you a fault-finding person? Jesus tells us the same thing. It is easy to look out and to see the problem in the life of another person and not look inward. Look at how they live and how they offended me and how that made it hard for me and how that was difficult. And could they only imagine what it was like for me to live this way without seeing that the problem is within? Brothers and sisters, fellow members of Christ Church Westchester, unless love can stretch us, stretch each of you who are members to forgive many sins, the sins of those who have covenanted together with us in the life of this local church, love will never avail much among us or characterize our life together. And it will never keep us from sin and it will certainly keep us from showing, verse 9, hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality was crucial for the advance of the gospel mission In Peter's day, when lodging could not be afforded and the advance of the mission depended on a willingness of Christians to actually open their home and sometimes board people so that they might be able to minister to the gospel to those around them. But it is crucial for us in our day today that we open our homes and we open our lives and we let people see how the Christian life is lived, how believers live among one another and together so that they might see a life displayed by the gospel and so that they might see how our lives are changed by the gospel and they might see all of that, Peter says, without grumbling. Are, those, are there some among us who are serving, who are giving, who are doing, but we do it begrudgingly? We don't like when we get requests from one of the deacons through planning center asking us to do something. 
and we grumble that we have a responsibility as a member of this church. We get frustrated the next time that we get an email reminding us that another baby has been born because it takes time to make a meal. And it takes time to get that meal to people's house so that they can be able to feed these new people in their lives. And we fail to see that there's a gift to our church. 60 or so kids now under the age of 12 years old have been gifted to us to steward for the sake of the gospel. Do we grumble when things don't go our way in the life of the church? There aren't initiatives that we would want or things that we'd like to do, or we didn't get the opportunity that we think that we personally deserved. We were the one who would have been the best at that, and we were overlooked for somebody else. Do we grumble? Peter tells these believers that they are to be a people who are self-controlled, sober-minded, whose love covers sin so that they're not easily offended and fault-finding, and that they actually open up their lives and homes, showing hospitality to one another, even when that occurs, and they are to do it all without a word of grumbling about how long it takes or how much it costs. Brothers and sisters, hospitality must be without grumbling, or it isn't hospitality. Do you grumble? Grumbling is not only sin for the New Testament church, Grumbling was the sin of the people of God in the Old Testament. And grumbling sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. Because their grumbling prevented them from seeing clearly what God had done for them. Redeemed them out of the bondage of Egypt and set them free in pursuit of the promised land. And that is exactly what grumbling does for us. We fail to see the wonder of what God has done for us and how he has set us free. And we grumble. We must, Peter tells us, be people who open our lives and use the gift that each of us have received, verse 10, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to give gifts to the church. And Peter tells us that each person in the church has been given one of these gifts. And according to 1 Peter 4, there are roughly two types of gifts. There are gifts of speaking, teaching, preaching, knowledge. And there are gifts of serving, administration, mercy, giving, hospitality. Every Christian has spiritual gifts. But if God is to be glorified through our gifts, we must actually use them to serve one another. Not to mark ourselves off as unique, not to distinguish ourselves, not to satisfy ourselves in the way that we live our life, not to actually think that we are finally meaningfully contributing to the church or the world the way that we think that we most meaningfully contribute to the church or to the world, but in service to one another. As we rely on him with the strength that God alone supplies, which can be hard when our strength is challenged. It's challenged by the sins of others. It's challenged by exhaustion. It's challenged by the difficulty of living with other sinners. Let me ask you, when you lead your Bible study or when you teach and admonish in some way, do you wing it because you're intelligent and quick on your feet? Or do you commit yourself to prayer and reflection because you need God's help to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God? When you serve in whatever capacity it takes in the life of the church, 
Is it in dependence upon God for his glory? Or are you just another person who's trying to do good for other hurting people without at all thinking about your dependence upon the Lord and the way that you execute your duties? Handing out every program. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church Westchester. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church Westchester. Taking up the offering and the strength that God supplies. Brothers and sisters, God does not get the glory if we do things in our own strength. He gets the glory when we do good things in the strength that he supplies by his spirit when we are living self-controlled and sober-minded lives as we love one another and show hospitality and as we care for one another in the way that we speak and in the way that we served. And Peter says all of this is informed by the imminence of the end of all things. It is actually the end of all things that serves as the catalyst in the middle of this passage that calls us to action. We are to do something because the end is near. We're not just to not do things, as we saw in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, but we are to be a people who do things. We are to do things for the good of other people and for the sake of the gospel because the end of all things is at near. The fact that believers are sojourners and exiles whose time is short on earth actually galvanizes them to live with a sense of urgency now in practical righteousness because we are stewards of God's grace through gifts to one another at the end of all things. The future controls the present. Practical righteousness at the end of the age. Notice third, the end for which God made the world. Look at the end of verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. We often think of the Son's incarnate, redeeming, ruling works, as well as the multitude of spiritual benefits that have been secured for us by Him as being the primary concern of God and the chief ordering of why everything is the way that it is. That God and Jesus were primarily concerned about saving us. And to a certain degree, Jesus took on flesh and died and rose again to save us. That is absolutely true in the scripture. But Peter helps us see that our salvation, that the final ordering of all things, that the reason that all of these things occurred was not primarily about us, that it was primarily about God in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God's beloved son took on flesh that God might be glorified. Jesus died on the cross that God might be glorified. Jesus has secured our redemption that God might be glorified. God has gifted us in the body of Christ to minister to and to serve one another that God might be glorified. God has poured out his spirit richly upon his people and given them a hope of heaven that God might be glorified so that his people would realize that life is not primarily about them but about God's glory. 
and him being glorified and a multitude of people made up of every tribe and tongue and nation, people who come from all over the planet, people who in many ways are nothing alike, but gather under the banner of the gospel and say to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All of God's works now and forever are a theater for his glory. So that verse 11, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And our response, the only appropriate response of a believer when they see God's works clearly is not entitlement, but it is worship. To him belong glory. Just imagine Peter, he's writing this letter and he breaks forth in praise. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Does praise characterize your life, believer? And in the midst of however you contribute to the body of Christ, do you break forth in thankfulness? To him belong glory. To him belong dominion. To him belong honor through Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for what God has done? And singing loudly and clapping loudly in thankfulness for what God has done through Jesus Christ. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. Because we are stewards of God's grace through gifts to one another at the end of all things. I just want to give us some points of application. First, each person is gifted to serve one another, but not to be unique. That is why you are gifted. You have been gifted to serve other people, gifted to minister to other people. And that gifting is to be a blessing to other people. And friends, we cannot assume from the New Testament that whatever whatever gifting that you have you will have in perpetuity or forever, especially if you do not use it for the good of other people. You are to cultivate what you are good at, and you are to refine what you are good at, and you are to practice what you are good at for the sake of other people, which is why we tell every person coming into the membership of this church, one of the things that we require is that you serve in the life of the body. We don't care how you serve, but we do know that you are required to serve. You have been given to the body to contribute to the needs of the saints. And perhaps you're here and you're not serving. I'm not speaking now in this moment for those of you who are over serving and need to rest, but to those of you who are not serving or perhaps not stretching yourself so that you might serve in the body. You have been given to this body to serve other people for the good of this body so that they might be encouraged and the unbelieving world might see the glory of the gospel in this body. And if you think, I don't have time, welcome to the club. And if you think, I don't have energy, no one else does either. And if you think, I don't have enough training, that's great because we like to train people. You have been given to this church to minister to other people. And one of the most helpful things you can do to serve in the body is go find one of the deacons. If you're a deacon, raise your hand. If you're a deacon in our church. Keep it up, keep it high. Look around, find one, and ask them, what can I do to help you serve this body? You can help Chris afterwards by breaking the baptistry down. 
you can help serve the body. Chris never builds it anyways. Tim always does it. (laughs) Second, you are gifted. Each of you has been gifted. We are to remind ourselves, brothers and sisters, that that gifting doesn't just lie with a few select people or people who have been marked off as deacons and deaconesses, but that each of us contribute to that. We are gifted to serve one another, and each of us has been gifted. Your gift might not be like someone else's gift. You might never be a deacon or a deaconess. You might never be an elder in the life of this church. But you have been gifted, and each person here is a gift to the body of Christ. Every single one of you, the reason we say that we love you and we're thankful for you is that each person here contributes and rounds out the gifting of the body of Christ and helps us, with God's help, better refract the glory of God in the life of this church. If everyone were gifted in the same way, our church would be completely lopsided. We don't need a lot of people gifted like me, or we would have a very broken church. We need a lot of people gifted differently than me so that they can help balance out the ways that I'm not gifted. Brothers and sisters, each of you has been gifted, and your gift is good, and it is meaningful, and it is valuable, and we are glad that God has placed you among us. As we think of that, when we think of gifts, third, I am not the only one who speaks, and the elders are not the only ones gifted to speak, but the elders and I have been given to model how we are to speak as if we are speaking oracles of God. Let me ask you, is that how you think of your speech? Do you think of the way that you speak to other believers or in other people or about other believers and about other people as speech that is oracles of God? Do you consider that the words of your mouth are words that should be given both privately and publicly as those that serve others as if they are oracles of God? Peter lays a heavy claim on our speech here. Oracles remind us of the Old Testament prophets, people who spoke, thus saith the Lord. And he says, the believers of the church have been gifted, not just the pastors. This would be very easy for him to say, the elders of the church have been gifted to speak as those who speak the oracles of God. He doesn't say that. He says, each of you has been gifted, some of you, those with gifts of speech, as those who speak on behalf of God. Let me ask you, is that how you think of your speech? Publicly and privately, in person and online, what you type and what you do with voice text, what you write in your journal, what you let other people see and hear about your life. Brothers and sisters, our speech should be that that serve other people. Fourth, Deacons are not the only ones called to serve, but they are to model how to do it in the strength that God supplies. Let me ask you again. Are you somebody here who is serving, but you are doing it perhaps to atone for your sins because you feel bad for what you've done and you want God to forgive you? Or perhaps you're trying to earn favor with God to kind of weigh the balances in your favor, thinking that if I do more, God will finally like me. Friends, that's not in the strength that God supplies. We serve in the strength that God supplies when we are stretched to do things that feel beyond our capacity. 
Of course, it is difficult to serve. And it is hard to open your home and funnel people through it. And it is exhausting, especially when they won't leave. But brothers and sisters, we are called to serve one another. And we are to do it in the strength that God supplies for the glory of God in Christ. And that at times, all of the time, will require more than we feel that we have to give. It will require conversations that you don't feel that you have time for. It will require meetings that you don't feel like you have time for. It will require doing things that you feel like you're not good at for the good of other people. Fifth, there is no such thing as an ordinary gift. Speech, oracles, serving to build the church. So let me ask you, because there's no such thing as an ordinary gift, are you envious of other people because they're gifted in ways that you wish that you were but you're not? And you're jealous of other people because they get to do things that you don't get to do that you wish that you got to do. And you're frustrated with people because you haven't been recognized to serve in the way that you think is most meaningful. There's no such thing as an ordinary contribution to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if our framing is wrong, our serving is actually much more selfish. Maybe I didn't get to do enough. And I didn't get recognized for the value that I am. Did they not see me for who I am? Brothers and sisters, is that you? If that's you, especially if you're a member here, you need to repent. You should come find one of the elders. We'd love to encourage you. But there's no such thing as an ordinary gift. Everybody's here, gifted to serve one another, and we need you. I think that was fifth. Sixth, the goal of our service to one another is to worship. Notice what Peter says. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory. And the goal of our service to one another is an affirmation of God's rule and reign in our life. To him belong glory, worship, and dominion, rule, and reign forever and ever. And one of the ways that we worship is to observe the ordinances. The ordinances of the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of baptism because it is the Lord's Supper and baptism in conjunction with everything else that we do in the life of the church, which is why we should do them as frequently as we possibly can. They remind us of what Jesus Christ has done for us and for our salvation. His body was broken and his blood was shed. He was buried after he experienced death. And he was raised to the newness of life for us. And that is why, brothers and sisters, if you're here and you have not been baptized, we are very clear in this church that it is only believers who are baptized. Believers who have professed that Jesus is their Lord, so we hear a credible testimony of conversion, as we heard earlier from John. And we see a life changed by the gospel which is why we often delay baptism so we can see, is there a credible testimony that goes with that profession? Are they living like who they say that they are? Which is why we wait to observe fruit in people's lives so that as we see a life changed by the gospel, we will see that it has been changed, verse 11, through Jesus Christ, because it will not be changed any other way. Let me ask you, Has your life been changed by Jesus Christ? 
Are you living as if you serve the church because Jesus Christ has changed your life? Have you repented boldly because of what Jesus Christ has done for you? Have you come to Christ recognizing the beauty of what he has done for you? He was crushed for us. He was pierced for us. Let us trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would help us now. Help us now to celebrate what you have done for us and for our salvation as we watch once again the wonderful gift and the ordinance of baptism, being able to see the beauty of a life changed by the gospel that it professes. And we pray that you would remind us as we welcome John into the membership of this church through baptism, as we give him the initial sign of what it means to be a covenant member of God's people, that what is true of him now is also true of us. We have been buried with Christ in baptism. We have put off the old life. We have been raised with Christ by the Spirit. We have put on the new life. And as a result of that, we can be good stewards of God's varied grace at the end of the age. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.